Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley, and today I'm here with Mike Mitchell. Everybody, hey Scott. It's been a while. Yeah. And this weekly segment is going to feature the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and any hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of August 14th, 2023. So Mike, I was going to jump into um, kind of an interesting report. Uh, because it, it got presented to me as looking for like top things in general. And it was actually from Kompersky.com. Um, they had a publication looking at Threat Actor that was targeting kind of the Eastern Europe industrial type organizations. Um, and, you know, they kind of broke it out in three different sections. I'm going to really just touch on two of them. There are going to be two separate articles that you'll see will be related. Um, but the first one is titled common TTPs of attacks against industrial organizations and it focuses on implants for uploading data. So I kind of like how they broke out like the category because when I think of threat hunting in general sometimes I like to look at like MITRE from a hey let's focus on execution or let's focus on persistence because mm-hmm. um, it helps me I guess see where I can build hunts that kind of touch on multiple areas than being almost too targeted. Um but it, you know, they talked about like 15 different variations of implants uh, that they kind of looked at over time. And I also thought it was interesting that the Dropbox was still being utilized for uploading. I feel like that's been around for so long that that wouldn't be as available um, as apparently it was when they were using it. And they also used the Yandex disk, which I've never, yeah, you know, I've never had any reason to be exposed to that too much. That was a whole uh, another approach. Um, but they mentioned some interesting kind of artifacts and things uh, through the entire attack chain. And one of them was um, there's a lot of uh, injection into the MSI uh, execs.exe, uh, which I've seen that being used more and more to inject into. Um, I don't know if there's any specific reason why I haven't dug into that. Like, what you know, is it just easier or is it something that people typically overlook um, or what? But that seems like where they kind of pivot through their different payloads because they actually deploy um, three different payloads and they kind of, you know, chain off of each other. Yeah, would that be considered a limiting uploading binary? Yeah, kind of, right? But you're like injecting into a known binary, so you're kind of like using it differently. Um, So it might be more like masquerading, but, you know, you're using injection. Um, Okay. But, yeah, but then the one thing that was interesting is when they... Um, started talking about the third payload that they dropped. Um, it actually had a behavior that was interesting, and that was if you ever executed it without command arguments, it just terminated, uh, which is a common, like, avoid sandboxing or avoid um, analysis, dynamic analysis, because, and I think ransomware, Lockbit, I think, did this uh, at some point, where you had to provide some sort of arguments that kind of unlock the executable to get it to right. run effectively. Um but something to note by since it it requires commands to run, um, the most common parameters through all the commands are using like the username, domain, SID, host, or NTLM hash. So like authentication based things. 
So I feel like that would stand out pretty significantly um, when you actually are kind of capturing that data, especially if you look for like patterns for like SIDs um, or, or hashes um, being provided. Uh, yeah, thought mm -hmm. that was interesting. Um, and then one thing they called out, and I tried to research a little bit of this to see if there's viability. They didn't say they actually saw the behavior, but when they did their static analysis, they saw this kind of in the code. And they said they actually used... Um, one of the ways they checked for privileges um, for remote hosts was calling the libvlc.exe. So that comes with the VLC player. Um, and I don't know what it is when it comes to interacting with that. I know a lot of organizations will, you know, up basically uh, install a VLC player across the world for just compatibility for any kind of media. Um, so it was interesting that they were kind of using that to prove out their privileges to see if they had administrative or not, or access remotely or not. Uh, so I didn't play with that, but they didn't have any evidence to show that it actually ran that way. Um, uh, but they saw that in the code itself. So it was an interesting call out to kind of be paying attention to maybe any kind of remote calls or something like that. Uh, and then they also heavily use the, uh, user's public directory. Uh, which, you know, I think is a commonplace, just like when people look at temp and some app data locations, the user public directory, uh, it can be used, but they seem to drop a lot of things in and out of there. So if you're looking at file rates specifically, and especially you can do them over a, a short period of time, um, that would be a good thing to be looking for when it comes to some of the stuff they called out. And they also do a big massive force deletion um, out of everything they drop in the user public directory. So not only like um, dropping things for things they were using, they did a huge like delete and then, you know, star whatever based on extension names and things like that just to clean everything out in like a huge batch script. Um, and then the last thing that I really liked, uh, just because I think it's always interesting to keep up with these, is they um, called out some of their other tools they use to transfer things. Uh, for getting data out and right. they mentioned a great list of kind of like uh, temporary share yeah temporary sharing sites right um, and like for instance I've never heard of null 0x0 or um, smms you know things like that so they have a really good list of sites it's worth checking out I don't want to read them all off because it might just kind of come off weird and be boring to follow but uh it was a great list. Like, like I remember we tried to put together a list and it's something that's hard to manage because of course anyone can stand up something. Um, but it's definitely different than like scraping the web for things you can find versus things that actors know um, because they're likely to be used again in some capacity. Uh, so it was a great list there for that. So yeah, so I, I thought it was a really good read, some really good technical insights. Um, and I like how it was very topical where they kind of grouped a bunch of different... Uh, I mean, they're dealing with the same actor, but they got to see like over time how things kind of changed and what didn't. Um, right. So that was a cool perspective. So yeah, that's that's all I got on that one. Any, any uh, comments or thoughts? Yeah, no, I think, um, so I didn't, it's gonna be a shameless plug, but I just sat into uh, basically 40 hours of throughout training that we did in, uh, in Black Hat and watched Lee take a lot of these type of Intel reports and break these down into hunting content, right? Looking for the behaviors, looking for the artifacts to hunt in, building hunts. So as I'm now reading through a lot of these documents, the things that pop out to me looking at, you know, the user public folder, um, how they and what they're doing to upload the data, 
a lot of the things that you're calling out from artifacts, um, a lot of this turns into really, really good honey. And to your point, the way they break it down based on um, implants for uploading data or implants, uh, implants for gathering data, and they kind of have a, I think it's like a four or five part um, Intel report on this particular TTP, the common TTPs for this threat. It does a really good job of breaking these down. And then again, we always talk about kind of the detection space versus hunting space. Using those service addresses <clears throat> for potential artifacts to hunt in your environment um, to see if people have been uploading to those things or maybe you, you add those into a deny list. Uh, there's a lot of things that you can do from a engineering perspective, from a hunting perspective, from an analyst perspective out of this article uh, to kind of protect yourself. Um, and then at the bottom, they give you a list of recommendations, which were, you know, pretty high level talking about, um, whitelisting application controls, VPN, VPN and network connections, uh, kind of common sense cybersecurity policy and procedure. Um, but this is tied to this particular TTP and the things that they will, you know, use or utilize to get through some of the security controls. So, you know, overall, these articles are amazing. If you have the time to read through them, uh, on a day to day. You know, I think it only helps you be a better analyst over time. Yeah, fully agree with that. Um, but from a from a you know a high level again from a honey perspective, I thought there was a lot of things to pull out of here to uh, you know utilizing your day to day hunting capabilities. Um, all right, anything else there? No, we can move on. All right, cool. Um, we'll go into kind of a high level topic here. So I posted an article around uh, Yahoo Finance. Again, I, I'll throw these out from time to time to have higher level discussions. But this one's around the cybersecurity managed service market surpassing $32.68 billion by 2030, um, increasing their uh, compound interim growth rate by about 11%. And what they're saying is, you know, cybersecurity managed service providers, um, I don't believe they, they add in MDR to this conversation. Uh, but just the growth in the market today from small, mid to enterprise level organizations utilizing these services to kind of offset their internal security goals, um, policies, and procedures. So at a high level, kind of what I want to talk about here is just the difference between MSPs and MDRs and kind of what I've at least seen over the past, uh, call it a couple of years, um, and the direction that a lot of these organizations are going. So this kind of surprised me, right? I, I think personally, I've seen organizations try to take a better hold of their security stance, at least the medium to large, where there was a kind of an exodus as we're moving to the cloud. These organizations were also moving to third party um, MSSPs or MSPs to, to help handle a lot of the alert fatigue, the day to day kind of, you know, SOC process um, to where the organizations can then focus in on the more advanced things like threat hunting. And I, you know, personally over the past couple of years, I think I've seen organizations start to pull back and pull in a lot of those services internal, right? Uh, where they're starting to own those capabilities of the monitoring, the the day-to-day -day tier one, tier two, uh, analyst cycle and SOC operations. Um, and then just looking into the differences between the, kind of the market and how they talk about MSPs, MSSPs, and then MDRs, where I think MDRs are starting to get a little bit more of a hold where they're going to come in and kind of sit on top of the tool set and capabilities in the process that you have and enhance those, um, you know, 
as a kind of an add-on to everything you already have deployed, really not ripping or replacing tooling, but more about sitting on top of that tooling um, and helping with the alert fatigue and helping with the the, uh, the IR process and the escalation process. So it just seems like there's a kind of a, a pendulum shift between MSSPs pulling it back house. And so I believe a lot of this growth they're talking about is probably in the mid the, the mid tier market, um, where I think I'm seeing more enterprise organizations kind of take back hold of their uh, their you know MDR space. So Scott, I don't know if you've had any of those conversations. You as a practitioner um, dealing with MSPs or MDRs in your past, um, have any kind of thoughts about this? Yeah, so I was kind of thinking about it. And I'm just kind of wondering, kind of like my internal thought process, you know, one of the things we always talk about is, or it's always brought up, it's not just us, but like people talk about it in general, as far as like the gap in cyber talent, um, and you know, the demand and things like that. And it's really easy to address a demand function when you can like outsource some of that stuff. Right. But then also think about, you know, do, does the, uh, managed service market pay better? Than people wanting it, than what people are willing to pay to bring that really good expertise, like on prem. So I feel like that might be also, and I like I don't know those numbers, but I feel like if 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 you made good money and you were you know really good at your craft, um, and they paid better to do things on prem, that's where you would go. But if they don't, and you were good at your craft, you're going to go to a managed service provider, right, um, to work there. So I feel like that kind of what would dictate that shift. Sure. I don't know what those numbers are, uh, because obviously, um, it, if you're competing for resources and there's limited resources and that market's growing, um, I would imagine that they're really trying to get really skilled and qualified people because there's kind of a higher risk if you're offering up managed services to multiple, um, customers, you can't have, I mean, they obviously hire new talent, but you have to have good enough talent to be able to manage the wide array of things you might see right um, yeah so and you brought up some interesting points here so one of the things about msps and mssps is that everything that they do is monetarily driven and focused right so mm-hmm. a lot of times it's hard for them to go higher the tier three tier four analysts because they're gonna cost more than the money they're making from like three or four customers right it's all about right um you know try to figure out cost for growth models and how much you're actually paying for the services. So, I mean, they say there's 6 million open jobs in cybersecurity. A lot of those are probably tier one, tier two analyst roles, and there's hundreds of MSPs out there, right? So you would expect that that market would snap up a lot of those open job roles as they grow and as they take on more customers. But in, in my perspective, right? So, you know, we'll call it MSP X. If they have 400 customers under their peer view um, and they have 100 analysts, right? Those analysts are inundated by alerts and it's probably going to be a less less exciting experience for them having to deal with... And you expect higher turnover. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and less opportunity to grow your career because you're, it's purely based on that, that revenue model. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to see that the, that industry is growing there's still 6 million jobs on the table in cyber and uh, you would, you would expect, expect that MSPs would be, who would be staffing up a lot of that, that, that skill set. So. Um, yeah. And I also feel like, 
if a company is looking at, you know, outsourcing some of those services, like, I mean, that whole thought process always fascinates me because is it really just like a risk management exercise or is it a way to accelerate things because you need something now and, you know, if you build it yourself, it takes time. Um, but is there like long-term strategies that go into that versus like, you know, there's, there's so many decisions and thoughts that go into that. And it's kind of driven based on how you want to run, um, your, your, your security in general, as well as, uh, what kind of deliverables do you want to be able to deliver? But right. it's, yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it'll be fun to watch as always, um, see how that grows over time. So, um, anyway, that's all for that one. We can move on. Yeah, so this one, like I mentioned, I'll be hitting another Kaspersky uh, publication, and it's tied to the same type of attack I talked about before, except for this one actually is the common TTPs uh, for implants for gathering data. And this one really caught my eye, and why I wanted to stay on this topic was because um, the whole uh, write-up was really about attacking air gap networks, um, which... I mean, everyone's kind of used to like the vectors, like, okay, either the network's not truly air gapped or it's removable media, right? That um, usually uh, causes those compromises or things. But it's interesting because when I think of an air gap network, I never really think of like information gathering. I think of like impact, right? Like I feel like, oh, uh, your goal is to really get on this air gap network and you already know what you want to do at that point. Because that's, you know, kind of like the Stuxnet. Uh, example, right? Like, hey, we, we've done our research ahead of time. Um, but this is really about data um, exfiltration and gathering. And then, the, so they do a really good job kind of talking about um, some of the similar things we mentioned in the last one. Um, you know, common use of using the users public directory stuff. Um, there was some uh, injection to uh, MSI exec uh, executable. But they have really good graphics as far as like the iterations of removal media going in and out and in and out and how they kind of developed over time their capabilities for what they learned and then what they got back and then how they changed their implant and what they got back. So it was like a really good narrative to kind of show, you know, what it is that's going on for this type of, I guess, process uh, for information gathering from uh, an air gap network. And, you know, it was interesting too, because as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, I mean, gosh, there's like so many controls that kind of exist. And I, and I commonly think about, um, you know, how a lot of people manage secure environments, especially if you're looking at like, you know, when I've been around some SCADA and ICS based stuff where, you know, your process is we have a machine that we put room the media and we scan it. And like, that's our defense. So we expect that whatever we're scanning it with will detect it before we move it on to a secure network. And as I'm looking at the behavior, for every time this media gets plugged in, all the execution that happens, all the file creates that happens, all those types of things, it was fascinating because I was like, you know, there are better ways to actually detect this type of behavior. And the first thing that came to mind was it would be really good to have, instead of a, necessarily a scanning machine, to have a machine that just has application whitelisting enabled and it locked down like crazy and then look at those logs when you plug it in and don't put the controls to prevent execution on removal media just let it try if it if it tries to execute something immediately then you kind of know what's going on and then uh when you go to the machine where you want to do the scan real quick it would be good to then execute what you expect to execute and see 
file create behavior. Um, because typically when you're moving things, you're doing, you know, patching or you're updating, um, and you could be potentially moving tools, right. Depending on like, if you're upgrading like an environment for some mm -hmm. reason, um, but you kind of know what to expect. And it seems like where, you know, because they're doing data collection, tons of files and tons of execution, different ways to enumerate things, store things and hold on to it. Cause it's also not live, right? It's not something that's actively connecting out to drop that data. It's got to collect it and store it. So you can imagine over time, all the amount, I think it was like every 10 minutes there was an execution. Um, uh -huh. it was kind of, it was going on. So it seemed like a very easy way to identify when you start looking at like file creates for you know an environment that should be pretty static you would think of it's air gapped and then also just like seeing what's trying to execute and not just being allowed to execute from those processes so yeah i really thought around the control aspect um obviously um from the uh hunting aspects uh i think there was um it, one of the things that looked for was interesting was it uh, really looked for WinRAR, and if WinRAR didn't exist, it auto-terminate. And then that was interesting to me because that means they already knew enough about the environment beforehand to know or expect it to be there. At first, I was like, oh, well, obviously, that's something they need to do before they um, run this payload, but they're not there. It's air-gapped, so they're not physically interacting with it. And also, one of the things they also looked for uh, was McAfee. So... It looked for the McAfee AV, specifically the MCODS executable, uh, which is vulnerable for the DLL hijacking, which is something it also used. So not only, um, so they obviously have some idea of what's in this environment before hit, they hit this air-gapped environment right. um, to be able to perform some of these, either from previous collections that were kind of similar or just because they expect what's going to be running in a, a non-air-gapped environment is going to be similar software to the air-gapped. Um, so those are some things that kind of stood out. Uh, but yeah, like just looking for heavy file rights um, or, you, you know, if you implement the controls for some whitelisting for like pre-scanning behavior, I feel like a lot of this can be identified before it even hits the network. Yeah, it's interesting. They um, they had kind of an understanding of what was already in that environment ahead of time to look for that uh, that McAfee uh, antivirus. Um, yeah. But to your point again, if we're talking about an air gap network and a removable device, you know, a lot of this could be stopped by policy. Um, yeah, yeah. But it seems like it's kind of a. With, was there anything in here that you thought was completely novel as far as the ability to grab data from an air gap network? I mean, outside of having that removable device deployed, um, a lot of the TTPs seem like they made sense for what the. Uh, the kind of the actor was trying to do in that situation, right? Was there anything like completely novel that really stood out to you? No, because they, they kind of deployed the basic kind of living off the land ways to gather information. Um, and like the only thing, like why I, I feel like I can't describe the visuals of all the different diagrams, but I mean, they basically describe the attack over time through like five or six different engagements where the media is going back and forth from air gap to non air gap to kind of show how things changed and what's different, how things are moved um, constantly, um, and then moving additional payloads in and stuff like that. Um, so that that's the part that I thought was really interesting because, you know, when I think of air-gapped attacks, I don't think of a long persistent, other than like maybe there's malware just sitting inside that never gets cleaned up. Um, but I don't never think of this persistent exchange 
Um, so that was kind of novel to me just because of maybe I just didn't think about it. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Um, whoever plugged in that USB sticks and have problems. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I always find very interesting, like I've heard some really funny attacks, right. Where that was, you know, people would basically tout how like, Oh, we're super secure. And it usually comes down to, well, they find some form of removable media. That they're able to move into the environment. Right. Yep. Uh, it kind of defeats the purpose of the air gap if uh, you're yeah. allowing removable devices in. Um, but again, another great article that you could break apart and, and learn a lot about, you know, TTPs and uh, tactics that are being used in the wild. Um, and then, you know, from a hunting perspective, again, I think there's a lot of gold in that uh, in that Intel report there that you could use for, for building hypotheses. Yeah, I mean, I would, if I had an air gap network and I saw this, the first thing I do is just kind of think about my processes and do they stand up to this attack in right. general? Because there's so many steps laid out that maybe, maybe you'll stop some of it, but you know, I know some people like to stop like, oh, well, the first part of the chain wouldn't work. Well, mm -hmm. that's fine, but you know, they, that part could be changed. What about the whole chain of events? Like, does everything stand to muster there? So, right. Awesome. Uh, moving on. Yeah. Great. Uh, so this next article is a bleeding computer. Um, Lolek posted admin arrested for aiding NetWalker ransomware chain. So this article is talking about a foreign entity that had a hosting service called Lolek hosted. Um, and evidently they were helping with a lot of these um, as a service type opportunities and, and uh, capabilities that these actors and threats are are standing up to help, we'll call it layman's uh, hackers, be able to uh, infiltrate networks. And so this Lolek group was 100% privacy hosting is what they they called it, um, giving you the ability to yeah, bulletproof, right? And so that, that term bulletproof was that they kind of turned a blind eye to um, not so legal activity in their hosting provider. So Linux servers, Windows servers, dedicated servers, um, they claimed stable network, 99.9% uptime guaranteed, um, 100 gigabit network, reliable sources, right? So this is a, a legit hosting center and data center that was allowing organizations to um, spit up C2 servers, DDoS attacks, spam campaigns, uh, and give them the infrastructure uh, specifically for NetWalker which I believe is what routed the authorities back to Lolek. Um, and so they were allowing them to, uh, I think there was a piece of the article that was talking about all the things that they were allowed to spin up um, and kind of turned a blind eye to. So really interesting, a lot of these these are going to happen probably outside of the U.S. Um, I, I don't know of, at least in the United States data search card, Hosting providers, they, they take a really close look at um, how you register, um, you know, how you set up kind of the the ingress, uh, egress of your IPs. A lot of times, you know, you're going through legit IP services where they're monitoring a lot of that traffic. Lowlife looked like they were allowing people to, you know, register under fake names. Uh, frequently change the IP address of the services and then, um, you know, any legal inquiries were getting kind of passed through that. So basically set up to allow these actors to, you know, do malicious activity. So 
really interesting article. I, I'm sure there's hundreds more out there like this, but for this organization to have the infrastructure that they do is pretty surprising. This, this seems like a legit business that just kind of opened their doors to, um, to not look not as legit services. Any, uh, yeah, I was, yeah, I was just kind of like taken back at first when I saw this because I was like, wow, like people, other people not really associated to the actual like adversaries or criminals got wrapped up in it because they were kind of like accomplices, not trying to be accomplices. Right. I mean, we know that adversaries will, you know, try to route their traffic through already compromised um, hosting um, that they've been able to compromise. And sometimes they stand up legitimate services at places where, you know, I mean, you, you hear about them, you know, using cloud infrastructure like AWS and uh, Azure and things like that sometimes. Um, and so it might made my head go there even like, what is, you know, uh, the accountability that, this kind of imposes for people that allow you to use their infrastructure for services. Um, you know, I think it's kind of good because it, it lets people put in the right processes um, and, and policies for onboarding different services and different uh, from different people, uh, which is a good thing. But I just didn't, I didn't know that this was something that they, that could actively happen. I just kind of felt like law enforcement kind of turned a blind eye to these types of things because, like, well, there's just not enough information. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if they, like there was some overstepping that was just like outrageous. Like, all right, well, they they took it too far, so now we can do something. Or this is kind of setting a precedence for other types of you know, hosting providers right. and things like that. Yeah, so I think these actors that are using AWS, Google Cloud, and Azure are probably using those services in an ephemeral way, right? They're spinning up, spinning down, yeah, uh, yeah. probably bouncing around those three and they're not setting a foothold. What this article made it sound like is that NetWalker, I mean, these, I think they they sent out about 50 attacks. Um, like all dedicated right, yeah. so I think it was a direct correlation to that specific provider, whether it be the IP net range. Um, I'm guessing that would probably be how they, they routed back to this service. Um, or the DNS uh, entries or the names of the organizations that are tied to that account. Um, yeah, any number of things probably could have tied well, back that, to this. Right. And that was going to say one of the things, you know, from a perspective of like defending against this type of behavior, you know, bulletproof hosting is a very common term now, and it's a marketable term that a lot of providers use. And it's not a bad idea to understand either the the IP address range or the ASNs these bulletproof hostings are being provided from, and you don't necessarily have to block them outright. But if you have watch list type stuff, um, it's a good way to get an idea for does that even like touch your network or do people go to places that would be fall into that that uh, those types of providers too? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know if there's crackdowns like this. I mean, I'm sure there are on those hosted entities on the other hosting providers, but it'd be rare for the whole domain to be seized, right? Because yeah, you don't need a, a full domain to spin things up in AWS and you know tie back to a federal IP address and stuff to give you. So anyway, cool. uh, yep. Next. So yeah, the next thing I was going to bring up, um, kind of short and sweet, but then I was going to circle back to something that. Um, the last time 
we were on the podcast. I was with Lee and we mentioned something. I want to course correct something we talked about. So I'll get to that. But uh, basically, uh, the on hex group, uh, which is a, a GitHub um, handle, they did a really good job of they've been this year of collecting different um, like Black Hat, OffenseCon, um, slide decks for the different briefings. So I just wanted to kind of make a call out to like, hey, if you weren't able to go and curious about some of the briefings, those materials, at least right now, are available um, in uh, Odd Hex Group's uh, GitHub. It's just under conferences is what he's got it um, posted up as. So it's a, you know, a great way to kind of see what was going on for those that can't either afford or have the time to go to those things. Um, they always, I always find that those, the material that you can, get, you can get some insights from him. Sometimes you actually see some nuggets, so... Um, check that out. But the thing I really wanted to circle back on, and just a, a reminder for those who are listening, the the last podcast that we pushed, we talked about an attack where they were using the CHCPEXE, and we kind of missed the point of it when we looked at it initially because it looked like, or the way we thought about it, it looked like it was using that to kind of do further execution, like Lil Ben. Mm-hmm. Wasn't the case. Um, you know, we, we talked about it. It was kind of interesting and we thought it was a way to kind of mask some command line arguments. Um, but I was digging into it cause I wanted to create some threat hunting content. One of the big key things about threat hunting is doing your research and not just doing your research on like, Hey, I found this, these strings I need to put in a query and now I'm good. It's like understanding what it is you're looking at. Right. And, and so I dug into it and the CHCP what it basically does is it changes the active code page for either command prompt or PowerShell. And it kind of ties back to, you know, you, when you uh, set up a Windows machine, uh, you kind of pick region, right, for language packs. Mm-hmm. It's important because depending on what kind of commands and things you drop, if you don't support the output for the, the language pack, then people have seen it, right? And they open something up with a foreign language, you get like squares, you get random symbols because it doesn't know how to display it. Yeah, it kind of looks like symbols and things. So I've seen it done legitimately. So you have companies that like run agents globally for whatever product they have. Sometimes when they run certain commands, they will run that to hard code what the page is so that their tool can interpret the data correctly. Um, But in this case, I guess it's common um, for adversaries, because I, I found it in multiple uh, sources, where they will force the um, the code page to be sixty five thousand and one, and that was the number we saw when we were talking. That's significant because it makes everything UTF eight. And the unique thing with UTF eight is it can incorporate almost all language packs. It's very broad because it uses was it like four bytes per character or something like that. Um, so. Uh, it's it's very easy then, so you, you know when you're doing information gathering, and that was the kind of case when you're dumping things. If it's in, you know, uh, Russian or Slavic or Greek, you will get the right kind of information back, and then you can choose how you use it and pushing it forward and things as well. Um, so yeah, I just want to kind of circle back. You know, no one's uh no one's perfect, but this is why research is really important, and and it's really fun. This is my favorite part when it comes to threat hunting is not only seeing seeing really interesting things, but like understanding like the whys someone does something because uh it it 
how someone operates and thinks uh, and the challenges they have to face that I would never have considered. Like I never thought if I was going to scrape the users out of the domain and they were in a different language, I might not get the right usernames if I'm using the wrong encoding. Uh, right. So yeah, that was that pretty... No, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry to cut you off. No, I was saying that is interesting the way... I mean, again, because humans are human. Hey, uh, there's there's different things we do as we hunt. There's different situations that you run into that you have to kind of pivot to to gain access or initial access or further escalation. Um, and now, as you see this over time, could be a really cool indication of somebody doing something out of country um, that they need to add that in to be able to get that data back. And so it could be help with potentially attribution or just some TTPs that, that these organizations and actors and threats are, are utilizing uh, to gain access. So really cool kind of call out and, and correction. But yeah, I think that kind of closes out. Is there anything uh, you had to add to that? No, no, no. Just, um, you know, I think these articles this week are great. I think we have a, I don't know, is there anything on the uh, the agenda coming up you want to call out? No, it doesn't look like we have anything on the, the near term um, to be looking forward to. Um, just that we'll be back here next week um, to be kind of talking through uh, our, our typical topics. So thanks, everyone, for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting podcast. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. So with that, you know, this closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of August 14th, 2023. Take care, Scott. Happy hunting, everybody. Yeah, happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.